0: morning would you please stand and join me in the call to worship which is printed in your bulletin why do you look for the living among the dead? he is not here the Lord is risen. He is risen the Lord is risen, he is risen the Lord is risen, he is risen where O death is your victory where O death is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Christ is risen indeed. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed.
1: Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.
2: That is what we proclaim on this Easter morning. We are so glad that you are a part of this worship time today as we celebrate the Lord of Life. Let me encourage you to take a few moments, maybe a little extended time, to uh, share an Easter greeting with others who are here in worship this morning. Please take note of uh, various announcements that are in your bulletin about upcoming events. I did want to uh, mention a few things. First of all, I want to uh, offer our corporate congratulations to the ten people who were baptized this morning. Uh, if you were here, you experienced the, the joy and the glory of that. Uh, so, if you're if you were baptized this morning, just stand a second. We want to recognize you again. Yeah. It's an awesome morning, and uh, it's was, it was exciting to to hear hear the testimonies, the, the power of God in different people's lives. I want to thank uh, everyone who helped with the breakfast this morning. People were here yesterday, before that, they were here early this morning, and uh, thank you so much, and thank you for your contributions that uh, will help out uh, the intergenerational trip to Puerto Rico we'll be doing later in the summer. And also, thanks to everyone who donated flowers. They are beautiful, and they, they they do communicate just the life that is ours in Christ.
3: We're going to affirm our faith. In the early service, we used the Apostles' Creed, which is a few years later than the one we're going to say together now. Please stand with me for the Nicene Creed, written in 325 and adapted a bit in 381 A.D. So think about the history of the church and what these words mean. Let's recite the Nicene Creed together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light,
4: Good morning and happy Easter. This morning I'm reading Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15:51 through 58. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet.
5: like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. Please stand, and we'll sing the doxology together.
1: Praise God from Then and bursting forth. Burst.
2: in Christ alone that we place our faith and our hope. Because of that, we can come to Christ in openness and honesty about who we are because of who He is. So I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. Almighty God, in raising Jesus from the grave, You shattered the power of sin and death. We confess that we remain captive to doubt and fear, bound by the ways that lead to death. We overlook the poor and the hungry and pass by those who mourn. We are deaf to the cries of the oppressed and indifferent to calls for peace. We despise the weak and abuse the earth you made. Forgive us, God of mercy. Help us to trust your power to change our lives and make us new that we may know the joy of life abundant given in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this day, for the power of Christ risen from the grave, conquering death and giving us the promise of eternal life. Father, as we gather today, our hearts are full, full of gratitude and thanksgiving, full of your peace and your grace, full of your power. We bow and worship before you in thanksgiving and adoration with hearts open to you. We also come today, Father, pouring out our hearts to you. We have just confessed our sins and our shortcomings, and we know that you forgive us. We also know that you hear us when we bring before you the burdens and the concerns of our hearts. Father, we pray today for all who are grieving. We think especially of the families of Ella Woolsey and Jerry Alderman. We ask, Father, that your grace, your mercy, your comforting presence would be upon these families and the friends who grieve. We pray that you would fill each one with the comfort of your presence. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. Roland Fletcher, Leonard Watson, Florence Tuber, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Tim Nichols. Bob Brown and Louise Princell, for Hudson Hess and Nancy Cole and Brian Orbacher and Peter Lingenfelter, for Chuck Barrett and Cheryl O'Brien, for Ben King, Doris Sepeian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, for Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck, for Bevrette to Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Emily Cricklar and for others who are in our hearts and our minds today we pray for your healing grace. we pray Father for our nation and ask that your grace would bear would be upon all of the leaders of our nation in the various levels of government. we pray Father for for those in this nation and around the world who are recovering from disasters and tragedies. we pray Father for the needs of this world for peace amid threats, and the reality of war we pray for refugees who are seeking safety and shelter and the basic necessities of life and we pray father for for the church around the world we pray today for for Hudson and Lucy Hess and we ask that you would continue to to help Hudson in his struggle with cancer we thank you for the ministry that the Hesse's have had through many years of service, primarily in Haiti. And may they continue to see the fruit of their labors as you bless the work there. We pray for, for your church around the world, particularly where there are where places of oppression and persecution. We think of the Christians and pastors in Zanzibar. The government that, that is, oppo- opposes the church and is attempting to drive out Christians. We pray, Father, that you will bless the church, that you will bless your witness in this place, that there will be a breakthrough of your spirit in powerful ways. We pray for all the churches around us who gather today to celebrate this most holy day. May our witness, our lives, bear witness to you in this county and beyond. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Be glorified in our lives, in our worship, in all that we do and everywhere that we go. And we offer this prayer in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, who was born in human flesh and crucified on the cross and rose from the dead and has ascended to be with you and has promised to reappear that we might be where you are. It's in his name that we pray, remembering the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom of
6: cruel world we live in, so battered your heart, that the hurt child inside you can't grieve, I can't say I blame you, I've been where you are, but all I can say is, it's true, you're wanted, you're precious, you're the love of his heart, and the old rugged cross
7: Our Gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, through chapter 28, verse 10. Following the tradition of the Church, I invite you to stand, if you are able, for the reading of the Gospel. The next day, the one after preparation day, The chief priest and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
5: No mother should have to watch her son die. But I did. Just hours ago. Was it yesterday or the day before? I don't know. The days are all running together. I watched helplessly as he suffered. I waited in agony for his suffering to end. It was the worst day of my life. Early this morning, my friend John came pounding on my door to tell me something incredible. He's alive. John says, my son is alive. How can that be? I saw him die. John would never be deliberately cruel. He believes it's true. Could it be true? I've seen my son do some amazing things. I've heard rumors of wonders he's performed, but this, I'm afraid to hope. I often think back to the day that Jesus was born. I thought that was the worst day of my life. I remember lying in labor on top of a pile of hay instead of a bed. I remember a donkey blowing his warm breath into my hair as I waited for the latest pain to be over. I remember hearing the shifting of a cow's hooves near me and hoping she wasn't going to step on me. And I remember thinking, this can't be where God intended for his son to be born. How did this happen? Did I misunderstand the angel, or had the angel been a dream? After all, the whole thing was very hard to believe. But Jesus was born safely. And when a group of shepherds arrived saying they were looking for the baby who is the Savior, Christ the Lord, I realized that even if we were in the wrong place, Everything the angel had said to me was true. My baby was the son of God. And God was with us. Jesus was not an easy child. Oh, he wasn't disobedient, but he he obviously had a purpose that was beyond his life in our little home. Sometimes I had to stand back and just let him be who he was. It was that purpose that led us to this horrible day. Only less than a week ago, we arrived in Jerusalem. As people recognized Jesus, they began cheering. And as more and more people saw him, they threw palm branches on the road in front of him. They tossed their robes under his feet and called out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I was so proud. Maybe, I thought, Maybe it's time for us to learn God's reason for sending Jesus to us. He'll become a great leader and bring freedom and peace to his people. How wrong I was. Before I knew it, Jesus was arrested. Arrested? Why? What wrong had he done? I was helpless to do anything. The angry crowds were thick and I couldn't get close to see what was happening. I could only pray for help. And then I heard the shocking news that Jesus had been sentenced to die. I pushed through the crowds to find a place along the road where I could catch a glimpse of my son as he walked slowly toward the place where he was to be executed. I was desperate to see him. Amazingly, as he pa- passed the spot where I was standing on tiptoes, trying to see, he turned his head and looked right at me. And the look in his eyes sent a chill through me. He was determined. This was his purpose. He was going to let this happen. The hours that followed were agony. I can't describe the despair I felt as I watched him suffer. I prayed for God to rescue him, but rescue did not come. Why would God send Jesus to us just to let him die in this horrible way? But now, this morning, John has brought me this incredible news. I'm afraid to let myself hope that John could be right, that my son, who was dead, is alive. I'm going now to find out for myself if it is true. I need to see him for myself, touch him, hold him. But somehow I know it will be different now. He won't just be my son anymore. He will truly be what he came here to be. The Messiah. The Savior of the world.
2: Father, we thank you for what Christ's coming, his death, resurrection means to us. Give us a, a clearer understanding, but more than that, more open hearts to you. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. I don't think I will ever forget that morning, May 18th, 1980, 8.32 in the morning, Sunday morning. I was in bed. I was a college student, so it's okay, right? Uh, Sunday morning, 8.30 in the morning. Being awakened by what it seemed to me like a sonic boom. It was loud enough that... It woke me up. I sat up in bed and thought to myself, what was that? What just happened? What I was to find out uh, a little bit later, turned on the radio because we didn't have anything like the Internet, uh, discovered that what I had heard was the eruption of Mount St. Helens. I was living in, in Newburgh, Oregon, about... 45 minutes south of Portland. And this mountain, about 100 miles away northeast, had erupted. It had been gurgling for a number of months and people were speculating if anything was going to happen. That morning at 8.32 it did. And a week later, almost exactly a week later, it erupted again. And it woke me up again. And... This time when the wind was blowing toward us and it covered our campus and the city of Portland and our car and our home with this warm ash falling. I didn't know at the time, but I have since learned that that that, that eruption was caused by a series of small earthquakes that eventually came to be a huge earthquake. And that huge earthquake is what triggered the eruption. And that's what we heard. I don't know if it's because of that event or other things that have been in my mind, but I think for the very first time over the last few weeks, as I was thinking about today, for the first time I noticed that when you read Matthew's gospel, he says that there was an earthquake on the morning of the resurrection. It intrigues me that Matthew is the only gospel writer that mentions the earthquake. Mark doesn't mention it. Luke doesn't mention it. John doesn't mention it. They have other events that they talk about the same. But Matthew is the only one who mentions an earthquake on Easter morning. Matthew is also the only one who mentions an earthquake at the last moment of Jesus' breath on the cross. In both instances, Matthew says an earthquake took place when jesus breathes his last breath and when jesus rises from the dead i don't think there are any coincidences in the scriptures i think every everything about every detail we have has a purpose to it and the fact that that matthew mentions this and the other gospel writers don't says to me that matthew has a point he wants us to understand something now understand i am not a scientist i'm not the son of a scientist I don't, I'm not even the distant relative of a scientist, All right? I, 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 nothing of that in me. But I've been trying to do a little reading and thinking about and, and understanding about earthquakes. And from best I can tell, and I'm sure there are different, if I'm wrong, you can tell me afterwards if you are a scientist or the distant relative of a scientist. But from what I understand, you have these plates, you know, in the earth, and they, they move. And they, get, they break, and they have jagged edges, and they get stuck. But when they get stuck, the pressure of them wanting to move doesn't stop, and you know that. You know that sense of when you're trying to to open something, and you know that like a bag of chips when you're trying to open it, and you're pulling at it, and it won't come, and it won't come, and well, finally it does, and what happens? They it just explodes and they go everywhere, right? I, I have a feeling that might be the same kind of thing. Those that's a very scientific term, that I'm using it, <laughs> so you understand that, right? So you know when they, when they, when they move they get stuck but they keep pressing on each other and eventually something breaks loose and they move and when that happens you have an earthquake and it shakes everything and and I we, when you read the scriptures you find that there are lots of there are a number of instances in scripture about earthquakes variety of things happening and many of those times. Sometimes they are just things that happen. But earthquakes are destructive. I think earthquakes are a part of, of the fall. I think because they are destructive. When, they, when earthquakes take place, most of the time there is destruction. Sometimes mass destruction. And I think it is, it is the brokenness of our world... That the evil one who desires to to destroy everything that God has called good, and that includes his creation, that he has disrupted the good ways of how God made the earth. And the evil one is always wanting to destroy. And this is one way he does that. Now, every so often, there are things, there are good things that come out of earthquakes. I heard someone was telling me, a scientist was telling me about stories of of. The ocean, earthquakes under the ocean, and out of that, the land rises and it creates a new island. A new place for people to live and to inhabit. There are those few stories in the midst of the destruction. And all that says to me is that even though the evil one's purpose is destruction, God has a way of bringing good out of things. When you read the scriptures, there are a number of places mentioning earthquakes. And most of the time in the scriptures, because again, the purpose of the scriptures is to reveal the nature of God. Those earthquakes are God's way of revealing his power. First Samuel chapter 14. God sends an earthquake to frighten the Philistines so they will leave the people of Israel alone. And stop persecuting them. In Isaiah chapter 29, God promises His people that the day is coming when He will rescue them from their hardship. And part of the way He does that will be through earthquakes. But the, 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 the point of God in the middle of earthquakes, because I think some earthquakes happen because we live in a broken world and, and, and things like that take place. But when they, are, when they are signs of God's power, it's because, not just because an earthquake happens, but because it happens at a precise moment. And so in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have been beaten, and they've been thrown into prison, and they're singing hymns, and at midnight it says an earthquake happens. And out of that earthquake, the jailer and his family and many people in Philippi become believers. It's because an earthquake takes place at the very moment Jesus breathes his last breath that it is connected to the power of God. It is because an earthquake takes place at the very moment Jesus rises from the dead and it rolls the stone that it is an act of God's power. Sometimes people want to argue about things like the parting of the Red Sea. Say, well, that was just an act of nature. Okay, it was an act of nature. My thing is... That act of nature happened at the precise moment that Moses put his rod into the water. And the Jordan River opened up for the people of Israel to cross... ...at the precise moment that the Levites, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, stepped into the water. It's the moment that reveals the power of God. And, and you see that here at the tomb. It's not that the, the earthquake doesn't enable Jesus to rise from the dead... Jesus rises from the dead and that creates this reverberation. And the stone with the angel is rolled away so that we would know Jesus has risen from the dead. When the angel comes down, the moment of the earthquake, I find it fascinating since God's sense of humor. First of all, the, the the soldiers fall over like they're dead, and when the women appear, come to the tomb. What do they find? They find the stone rolled away and the angel sitting on top of it. That just strikes me as funny. You know, it's as though the angel's saying, "You think this stone is so great? The stone's like a pebble to God. The stone that, that that you think is going to hold Jesus in the grave." It's it's like the smallest little rock in your driveway. It's nothing. And he's sitting on top of the stone saying, what was that about? You probably have realized that today is not just Easter. It's also April Fool's Day, right? That doesn't happen very often, that Easter falls on April Fool's. The last time it happened was 1956. It only happened about four times in the 20th century. The next time it will happen is 2029. I wasn't preaching in 1956. And I don't know that I will be in 2029. So I figured I better take advantage of this opportunity today. Right? And as I was pondering that, it struck me as this, sort of this polar opposites of the resurrection, Easter, and April Fool's Day. They just seem like completely different unconnected events. There is, however, a a long Christian tradition that the cross was a trick God played on Satan. That Satan believed that he had defeated God. And that when Jesus dies, there is this huge celebration in the depths of hell. On Holy Saturday, it it is a party like no other party in the depths of hell. And then Sunday morning, they hear a little rumbling. And they realize that what they thought was victory is defeat. What they thought was death is life. And I think there is something about this story that, in a sense, God is saying to every power of evil april fools i do believe that this this earthquake on this that first sunday morning that first easter morning is pointing to that power, that that revelation of god's power in that moment of the resurrection and the earthquake being a part of that it is pointing to the day when god's power will be ultimately and Fully revealed. It is pointing to that day when all of us, all humanity, all of creation will come to realize what we have missed. The power of God, the almighty, unstoppable, unlimited power of God. And that's why Paul can write about Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess... The earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that day is coming. And when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you find you find that in the story, and actually Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell talking about that day to come. One of the elements of that day is earthquakes. When you read the book of Revelation, in a variety of places, there are earthquakes. It is the revelation of God's power. And, and God's power is not just about the earthquake that took place at the cross and at the tomb. But it is the power of God over all of creation. Over everything. If death cannot hold Jesus, there is no power in the world. No power anywhere that can keep God from accomplishing his purposes. I think in that moment, in some sense, there is... It is an expression of God's power over the claims of earthly powers. When we read the end of Matthew 27, religious leaders come to to Pilate, the governor, and say, look, we want you to seal up the tomb. And he does. I mean, they exert a lot of power. They have a lot of influence for him to do that. The Romans have a tremendous amount of power. I think they think they have all the power in the world. There is nothing that can stop them. Even someone as wealthy and as respected as Joseph of Arimathea has to go to Pilate and say, Can I have Jesus' body? Do I have permission to bury Jesus there is power and pilate says fine you go seal up the tomb and the stone is there and they post the guard and they seal the tomb and to seal the tomb means you enter that tomb only at the threat of death because if you if you break that seal you are saying i'm willing to take on the power of rome and nobody in the right mind would do that And yet on that Sunday morning, the power of Rome looks like it's non-existent. And God makes the declaration that he's been making through the centuries. That despite how powerful the beings of this earth are, despite how powerful the powers of this world may appear and may think they are. And we may give them credit for power. They are nothing against the power of God Almighty. Jesus is risen. Death cannot hold him. That's right. The powers of Rome cannot hold him. The powers of the temple cannot hold him. We get a glimpse of that even at the death of Jesus when the curtain is ripped in two. There is no power on earth. I can come close. There is no rival to God. I think Matthew may mention the earthquakes because he is, he is directly addressing his prophecy to Jewish people, he is directly addressing his prophecy to the church. And in a world in which the church has been persecuted, in which the powers of this world are inflicting their, their might on the church, Matthew is saying, don't believe it. Don't believe it. And in a world in which we see the powers of this earth inflicting themselves on God's people all over the earth in a variety of ways, subtly and overtly, we are reminded not to believe that they are the ultimate power. God is. And if God is the ultimate power, then we don't have to grasp the power anymore. If God is the ultimate power, if the tomb is empty, if death has been defeated, if the powers of this world are melt like putty in the presence of God... Why do we feel the need so often to grasp the power? What we're called to do is to surrender to the power of the risen Christ. We can give it up. And when you know that God is the ultimate power, what struck me is when you know that the Sermon on the Mount all of a sudden makes sense. That blessed are those who mourn for the sins of the world. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of Christ. Because God is greater. And when you release, when you realize that that God's power is ultimate, when God is Almighty, when you realize that the power of the power of the resurrection, the greatest commandment makes sense. That we live our lives loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And instead of grasping for our own love. Instead of grasping for what we can get, we keep giving. When you know that God's power is almighty, then the kind of servanthood life that washes disciples' feet that understands that the last shall be first. That if you want to if you want to be successful, you give up your life. that the kingdom is about little children, the mindset of little children, the spirit of little children, all of that begins to make sense because the tomb is empty and God is victorious. And the cross makes sense. And if the cross makes sense... And what feels like death in our lives isn't really death. It's the pathway to life. What feels like loss isn't ultimate loss. Because God is greater. and Because God's power is almighty. Our problems are not the last word. Our struggles are not the last word. As as much pain as we may feel and disappointment as we experience, it's not the last word. Because the cross isn't the last word. God is greater. Now that's not denial. That is not saying that we don't feel the pain because we do. Nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in our faith, does God say to us, I want you to pretend that that pain isn't real. Nowhere does God say, I want you to pretend that that disappointment isn't real. Nowhere does God say that I want you to pretend that that life is a struggle. That you face heartaches and burdens and difficulties. Nowhere in the gospel are we asked to deny reality. what we're asked is to believe that because the tomb is empty, because God is greater, that our problems and our struggles and our disappointments and our pains are not the last word. Because the day is coming when the risen Christ is going to reveal Himself in all of His power in a way that we've not yet seen And God will redeem all of our brokenness and all of our pain and all of our struggle. It seems to me that in many ways that's what Psalm 46 is telling us. Psalm 46 is one of those places in the Old Testament that talks about earthquakes. And it speaks of them in a negative sense. And it says, Though the earth shake, that the mountains quake, though the rivers are running rampant, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And something in me says that the psalmist is looking the way that he can, he is, he is thinking, he's looking to the day that we're looking toward as well. Experience the fullness of the almighty God. I don't know if you ever spend the time reading the fine print on your insurance policy, your home insurance policy. I suspect you don't. Most of us never read that stuff until we need to, right? Then we realize, I signed that? I can't believe I signed that. But there's a part of every homeowner's insurance policy and probably your automobile insurance policy. There's a part of all of that that talks about things that the insurance industry calls acts of God. I've been thinking about that. When you read out what these are the acts of God, it's things like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and and natural disasters all these horrific things that come to us in life that those are the acts of god anything that happens to what you have that didn't that wasn't created by a human being so if your neighbor goes out and cuts down a tree the wrong way and it falls to your house that's his fault but if the wind blows that tree over and it falls in your house that's god's fault according to the insurance industry that's an act of god I was reading about this this week, and I came across a paragraph, and it had a heading that intrigued me. I just sat there for a little bit thinking about it. And the heading of, this next, of the paragraph described what the acts of God were. The next paragraph said, protecting yourself from acts of God. <laughs> that just jumped out of me. I thought, wow. I think a lot of people think that way. I've got to protect myself from the acts of God because I don't really think God is who He says He is. I've got to protect myself from acts of God because He's going to ask me to do something that's going to hurt me, that's going to be bad for me. I have to protect myself from the acts of God. And let's be honest, there's so much of our lives that we live thinking subconsciously, I've got to protect myself from the acts of God. But the reality is, Rather than protecting ourselves, we ought to be embracing the acts of God. We trust in the acts of God because they are all rooted in the empty tomb. They're all rooted in God's heart of love and grace and compassion and mercy and strength and power. And God's designs for us are always good, whether it feels like it or not. And it strikes me that maybe, maybe the real, the real connection of Easter and April fools is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. When he says in chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we are saved. No, it's the power of God. what looks like foolishness, what makes us look crazy, is really the power of God. And Paul can write that in chapter 1 because of what he writes in chapter 15. That if Christ is not risen, our faith is useless. And... If our hope is in Christ only for this life, then we're more pitied, more foolish than anyone in the world. And he goes on to say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. It looks like foolishness to most people while the rest of the world is living their life trying to protect themselves from the acts of God, we're embracing them, celebrating them, rejoicing in them, trusting in them. Because we know who God is. And maybe the question for us this morning is, do we really believe that the power of God The empty tomb is true. But maybe the question for us is not just that, but do we live like we believe it's true? Holy Father, how can we express our gratitude our hearts of thanksgiving and praise and worship. Christ is risen. Forgive us for the times when we live as if you are not the almighty God who conquers and rules all. Give us courage. Give us faith. Give us hope, give us hearts and embrace who you are, what you do, all that you've promised through the power of the risen Christ. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we declare our faith in singing This great hymn of Charles Wesley's Christ the Lord is risen today. we uh, did in the earlier service this morning, we will do again for our benediction. I will say, "The Lord is risen." You respond, "He is risen indeed." In a whisper first, and then with our normal speaking voices, and then raising the roof. The Lord is risen. He is risen the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. The Lord is risen. Amen.